When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk and Radio. There is some good news for us to absorb this morning, ladies and gentlemen, as the gloom lifts over London and the blue sky broadens our horizons. It looks like we have the lowest number of COVID cases since December. And with vaccine numbers nearing 10 million, the Prime Minister is already talking about some kind of normality returning in the summer which might just be the best news we've heard all year. I know it's only the 2nd of February, but hey, listen, we'll take it where we can get it. This morning, we'll be taking the temperature of the nation with George Pascoe Watson, former political editor of The Sun, uh, of course, chairman now of Portland Communications. I'll also be asking him, what on earth is going on with the SNP? Because they seem to be disintegrating before our very eyes. Joanna Cherry uh, seems to have been sacked from the front bench uh, by Ian Blackford because she's too friendly with Alex Salmon, for one thing. And also, uh, she rather agrees with Julia Hartley Brewer on the status of... Of women. We'll also be checking out what this new South African variant is all about and how so many people could have been infected with it without being connected in any way, shape or form. And if this massive testing programme uh, is going to be successful, what in fact needs to happen? Plus, as ever, we need to hear from all of you. What are you seeing? What are you doing? And where are you going? If indeed you're going anywhere, some people have already started looking at the possibility of going uh, on a summer holiday. Some people have started looking at the possibility of sending their kids back to school. We certainly seem uh, to be, uh, at the very least, I hesitate to say, uh, heading into some kind of home straight. Would that be a bit too optimistic for you? 0344 499 1000. We do also know, of course, that many of you are still suffering horrendously. We're going to be talking about the hospitality business. Uh, There's a campaign being launched today, which we're very pleased uh, to illuminate, which is all about trying to get people back into the pub, back into talking to one another, away from the loneliness aspect of what many of us are feeling through this pandemic. Lots of people don't actually talk to anyone else, any other human, during the course of a 24-hour period. Coming up later on, we're heading over to Lanzarote, where former Brexit Party MEP Alex Phillips has been marooned for weeks and weeks and weeks. She'll give us the latest on the European Union squabbling with its own member countries. And we'll find out about a new campaign to end loneliness as well. 0344 Ransom is also here to tell us why the government could outlaw the practice of care homes banning visits from relatives despite the vaccine and a whole series of testing mechanisms. Harriet Harman says it is against the Human Rights Act and it is essentially cruel. Speaking of which, I'll be asking what on earth is going on with Elon Musk as well. Apparently he's injected a monkey with a microchip in its brain to enable it to play video games. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, why would you do that? And where would you get the monkey from? 0344 499 1000. You listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, time to say a very, very good morning to George Pascoe Watson, former political editor of The Sun, chairman of Portland Communications. George, very good morning to you. Hi, good morning. I'm feeling um, slightly optimistic this morning. I mean, sometimes my mood changes by the day, but at the moment it seems as though we've got some some decent news coming through. The, vi- the virus seems to be on the wane once more. Obviously, we know that we've got the new variant uh, problem as well. But the vaccine rollout is quite extraordinary. I mean, it's probably going to hit 10 million either today or tomorrow. There's a whole raft of great news, uh, Mike. And, I, and, you know, it's important to put that in context. Of course, there are still people very, very sick and people sadly very uh, much dying as well. But amidst all that, let's have a look at the positive news. There are photographs this morning of the Isle of Man where people are being pulling pints and being able to meet each other and uh, having meals 
in pubs we don't have to wear face masks mm. because they are covid free and it's a reminder of where we were a few months ago um in mid-january there are seventy thousand seven zero thousand cases new cases every day in mid-january only and now yesterday there were eighteen thousand cases this thing is on the wane and the prime minister talking about hopefully some sort of a british staycation uh, holiday summer this uh, this year and that gives us hope and there's also talk uh, of getting the schools ready to be going back uh, maybe sometime around about Easter which is obviously great for those people who've got uh, young kids as well so lots of reasons not to be cheerful but to be optimistic and and the one that you've just crowned it all with Mike the vaccination program is going better than anybody could have imagined uh, 10 million vaccinations soon very soon within days uh, and that just keeps on marching. And, and you think about the NHS, you think about the volunteers, you think about the pharmaceutical companies, you think about the army of people up at the pharmacists up and down the country who are going to work to make sure that people are getting jabbed. It's a fantastic story. It really is. And it seems to me as well that a kind of calm has descended upon Downing Street and, and the government in a way, which is quite interesting, really, to me, because... Far be it from me to suggest that they're on top of this, uh, because, of course, the Labour Party would have you believe that they are doing everything too late and not strongly enough and all the rest of it. But, I mean, it seems as though as as the uh, crisis kind of got worse through the beginning of January, they seemed to get a better handle on what they were doing. Well, I think a bit of experience obviously comes into this. And I start from the uh, sort of pragmatic perspective that no human being on Earth uh, could really be equipped to deal with a situation like that. Uh, some of our listeners might criticise me for that, fair enough, but I just think that this is unprecedented in the sense that nobody has ever had to deal with this situation. Mm. Uh, so you're learning as you go, and, and of course, as time goes, the, one, the only decent thing about that is you begin to learn lessons. And you're always trying to balance uh, what uh, you know the economy against people's health, uh, and that's the that's the trick in this thing. And for different audiences, the wrong decisions and the right decisions are very, very different. Yes, indeed. Um, I think. Go on, Mike. No, I was going to say. I mean, take for example this idea of shutting down the borders and making this hotel quarantine a thing. The Labour Party this morning still banging on about how they should be doing it harder. They should be doing it better. The SNP, who we'll come to later, uh, we believe in the in the in the guise of Nicola Sturgeon today, will probably order a tougher hotel quarantining. Um, uh, sort of regimen for Scotland. Um, and yet there are other scientists who say, actually, you really can't be sure that that's even going to work. Uh, and that's really underlying my point, which is if you are, you know, we say in politics that to govern is to choose. And in the end, one person in this situation, Boris Johnson, has to be the decision maker. And he's surrounded by all this different evidence. He's surrounded by some evidence which is dodgier than others. Um, he's also surrounded by incredible political pressure from the Labour Party, from the Nats uh, up in Scotland to do something differently. And at the same time, he's hearing from the business community saying, please do not shut us down. <clears throat> We're at our wits end. We're about to fall over. And he's also worried very much about the NHS and whether it can cope. And it, to make a decision under those circumstances and to keep calm about it uh, is very important. The one thing I will say about this border situation is that, you know, the aviation industry is desperate for the borders not to be closed. But at the same time, it's not 100% clear that uh, the SAGE committee did tell the Prime Minister to close the borders. That's certainly what I'm led to believe. And uh, it is one piece of evidence amongst many pieces of evidence that uh, the Boris has to weigh up in, in the balance. And of course, don't forget, we live on a very, very important island, the fifth biggest economy in the world. We rely on imported medicines and foods and goods and services the whole time. So closing the border is a much more complex decision than some might have you believe. Well, that's right. And I mean, to close it to certain listed countries is also kind of um, impossible in its in its own way, because as people were explaining, I think, on Talk Radio yesterday, um, if you want to come to Britain from South Africa and you want to avoid um, the quarantine, you just go to a, a different country and fly in from there. That's right. And uh, these loopholes are there to be exploited and will be exploited. And, uh, you know, there are complexities to how you manage to police uh, these border closures. Although it is clear that the, the, you know, the optimist in me says that this lockdown, which we've been going on for about a month now, has, has actually beginning to work. 
Now, I know that the Prime Minister is also thinking that when we come out of this lockdown, instead of having a tiering system regionally around the country, that there will just be one big national policy, which Mm. will mean probably a slower exit, but a more universal and successful exit. Yes, but this is also now the time, I think, and it's beginning to cut through, I think, with all of the study, studies that are being done on the young people of this country, uh, on loneliness and on depression and anxiety. And I think the government is finally now beginning to see that they have to sort that situation out because they're going to need a new approach, I think, once this lockdown is lifted, because we can't continually go back into lockdown and shutting schools and closing restaurants and pubs and hotels every single couple of months, can we? Well, if we did, it would have effects that you and I can't, nobody can really imagine the long-term effect of that. It it seems unthinkable, really, um, which is why the vaccine uh, and a treatment, don't forget also, which is what the pharmaceutical industry are working on, which is a treatment for those people who have got COVID. That's a very important part uh, of of this solution and a test and trace system which works. And that's the the ultimate situation we would find ourselves in where we can actually go back to normality. People are vaccinated, probably an annual top up dose, a jab um, and not even necessarily a jab. Now, the industry is looking at other ways mm. of uh, of taking the, the vaccine through or orally or a patch or maybe a nasal spray. So that's the solution. And, uh, you know, you only have to look at the 10 million uh, jabs that are being done in this country to say, that gives us real confidence and, and full marks to the scientists. Mm, absolutely. Let's talk a bit about the SNP, George, because I smell, as I'm sure you would if you were still politically editor of the sun, something of a scandal uh, inside the SNP, which is going to come out uh, either in dribs and drabs over the course of the next few weeks or in one huge kind of uh, lump uh, one, at whatever time Alex Salmon gets himself in front of a committee of people who will let him speak. It's a real, real mess uh, in Scotland. I mean, you just take a look at the COVID situation in uh, in Scotland, where you know the SNP have been in power for many years, and they've only got a fraction of the number of people vaccinated mm. in Scotland. And uh, your first rule as a as a leader uh, in in Scotland is to make sure people have that vaccination. So that's causing a lot of grief. But within the party, uh, you are right that there's a real a sort of rift. Uh, between Nicola Sturgeon's uh, supporters um, and Alex Salmon's friends and and supporters. And Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmon are at loggerheads, are very, very much daggers drawn. As Scotland goes only five months now from uh, their parliamentary elections, which are absolutely critical. Mm. So the the, the knives are out. And uh, yesterday, Joanna Cherry, who uh, is a Scot at Nat, MP up in Edinburgh. She would have been my MP for where I grew up in Edinburgh, actually. And she was kicked out of her job on the front bench in Westminster yesterday because it is, I think, seen that she's more of a supporter of Alex Salmond and takes a, a different view to Nicola Sturgeon mm. on, a, on a bunch of very important issues. Yes. And, and, she's been, and she's been a bit vocal about it lately as well, hasn't she? She has. She, Joanna Cherry is a, you know, a very distinguished and respected uh, Scottish lawyer. Uh, she's no uh, shrinking violent. Uh, she was very, very clear about her views, and she was very clear last night that she had been sacked. And uh, that's storing up a lot of uh, frustration uh, in the SNP ranks. Um, of course, Nicola Sturgeon wants to make sure that she's surrounded by absolute loyalists as she goes into this election, and where there's going to be pressure. Uh, pulled on her by Alex Salmond, who wants to go public mm. about a uh, huge uh, court case that ended last year involving him uh, and allegations about uh, his behaviour. And so it's a very, very murky situation that they go into an election. And it's only, uh, I, I guess, if you're if you're not a, a, a Nat, uh, it's only a shame that the Labour leadership and the, and the Scot- Scottish Conservative leadership are not in a really strong position to take advantage of that. No, that's right, because, I mean, I don't think there's anything that's going to stop uh, a very big win for the SNP uh, come those elections in May. But interesting to watch Nicola Sturgeon yesterday, where she was kind of dodging around a question about why the vaccine vaccinations were, were, were so low in terms of numbers. And I think yesterday was the lowest ever, only 9,000 vaccinations given out. And she's kind of hiding behind this idea that she's not supposed to give away how much vaccine she's got. And I think this is going to be her downfall, that she acts like a solicitor. She acts like a lawyer when she's asked a a straightforward question and she kind of dodges it. And that never looks good. 
I think that's uh, a very good analysis, Mike. Uh, she is very good at it. Let me be very clear. I've been around politics as you have for 25, 30 years. And I can, you know, you can tell people who are very, very accomplished and assured. Um, yes, for sure. A lot of people um, don't like that sort of evasion, but she's very good at evasion. And let's be honest, in politics, sometimes you can't come out and say what is screamingly obvious to mm. everybody else because um, there are too many compromises in politics. And she's very good at that. There's no question. And she will win the next election uh, in Scotland. But the difficulty then, of course, here in, in, in London, in, in Westminster for Boris Johnson will be how does he behave when she tries to have what's called a wildcat referendum on Scottish independence? Yeah. And what will be... Uh, the, uh, the, the the sort of London government, the Westminster government's attitude towards that. Boris Johnson has already said he will do nothing to allow that to happen. But uh, in a sense, you know, this will be her big marker in the sand. My personal view is uh, we should stop sending the, uh, the Scots the money that they get from the Barnet formula for a year just to get them to feel how it would be out of the uh, the union with uh, with the rest of the country and uh, see how they like that. It would probably bring them back into the fold. Well, exactly right. And more and more commentators in Scotland are beginning to say that the inquiry, uh, such as it is right now into the whole Salmond affair, uh, is pointless and it's a farce because it's not really being run properly uh, and independently. Well, it's not. And that is absolutely the situation that they find themselves in. And uh, it's such a country riven by... Um, frustration about this this very big issue and and i don't quite know how it's going to end but it's very very messy and of course the prime minister went up there last week deliberately to try and bring the spotlight of the media he wants the media to be looking very closely what's happening in scotland because a lot of this murk gets exposed when you put the the, the spotlight of the media on it and that puts pressure on the players and that's what boris johnson wants to happen he wants to see how these guys respond under the full glare of the media spotlight where you can't uh, be evasive. You have to be very clear about what's happened. Yeah, absolutely right. And what's going on uh, finally, George, with the Chancellor? Because we haven't really heard much from Rishi Sunak lately. Um, we expect him to be making some kind of presentation, I think, budget-wise soon. Um, what do you think he's working on at the moment? The Chancellor's got, I would say, aside from the Prime Minister, the most difficult job of, of a magician you can possibly imagine. <laughs> uh, I've never known any chancellor to have this challenge uh, in my lifetime, which is to make sure that the public finances get back into some order, uh, which means raking money back, either by raising taxes, which the Conservative Party will hate, and the business community is not ready for. Um, otherwise, the world money markets, who, who set our interest rates for us and make sure that uh, you know we pass the tests when we borrow so much money. Otherwise, they'll stick up the cost of our uh, interest, which we can't afford as a country, which will be passed on to businesses who uh, have borrowed money and homeowners, uh, and that will uh, be a disaster for them. He's also got to keep the furlough tap running for all those people who are unable to work right now. And he's also got to try and show that he's a serious guy who cares about conservative um, sort of financial uh, strength, which is always the differentiator between them and the Labour Party at a general election. So it's an impossible trick that he's trying to pull off. My, my hunch is that's why he's quiet. He's working uh, around the clock to present a budget in a month's time, which makes sense to as many people as it can possibly do and keeps Britain on an even keel whilst making sure that he doesn't uh, make public borrowing worse uh, and make sure that the, the economy can continue to function. That's really what he's trying to do. It is an impossible uh, a dream because in the end, we have to start getting the money back. Mm. And as I say, you only do that by stopping spending or by raising taxes. Exactly. Or the final one, which is to grow the economy. And that's my favourite option. Mm. And I think a lot of people around the Chancellor, including him, take that view, which is if you can get the economy to start regenerating, for businesses to start opening up, for consumers to start spending all the billions that they've been sitting on in this pandemic, then you can begin to grow your way back to economic strength. And the tax receipts start coming into the treasury. All of a sudden, the deficit, the debt goes down and uh, more and more people are employed. More and more people employed means they go out and spend money in shops and restaurants and buying stuff. 
And of course, that's a virtuous circle. So I think the ultimate dream for the Chancellor is to is to get a, a budget for growth uh, in a recovery. Uh, but it's uh, it's not easy. Yes, George, I think you're absolutely right. George Pascoe Watson, Chairman of Portland Communications, former political editor of The Sun. Spend your way out of debt. I think that's the way the government is going to see this. I think that's the way the government has to look at it. Uh, I've always had this argument with Peter Hitchens, uh, who was on the show yesterday. You can find the interview uh, live on YouTube, of course, at the moment. Is that, you know, it's such a massive blow to the economy, this entire lockdown scenario, that they can't possibly let it kill the economy off. It's almost as though you owe the bank so much money, they can't afford to let you go under. It's that kind of situation. And I think uh, George is absolutely right. If Rishi Sunak takes the view that we spend our way out of trouble uh, as a government and as a country, then that may well rescue the economy overall. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, to Dame Esther Ranson, founder uh, of The Silver Line, because the story uh, in the Mail today suggests that uh, Harriet Harman uh, is going to put uh, before the uh, the government sometime uh, possibly today or this week uh, a suggestion that it's time to make uh, banning indoor visits to elderly relatives in care homes uh, actually illegal because she claims it's against the Human Rights Act to stop people from seeing their families. And we know uh, the last time we spoke to Dame Esther, uh, there was some light at the end of the tunnel because people had been given permission to go and see their elderly relatives, provided they could get a test. But of course, in this latest lockdown in January, that hasn't been happening. Let's find out what the situation is. Esther, a very good morning to you. And to you, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, it seemed as though they'd sorted this problem out, didn't it? Um, when they started introducing testing for not only the staff at the care homes, but also visitors. Uh, and we were quite sort of enthused by that. But it seems to have all gone backwards again. Well, and the other light at the end of the tunnel is, of course, the vaccine. And they are rolling out the vaccine as fast as they can to mm. care homes. Some, I understand, have got outbreaks of COVID and so they can't actually vaccinate those residents, but I think that's only a small number. Mm. So things are improving, but I can't see that they would be improved at all by trying to bring in some sort of draconian law because it's not that the care homes are sadistic or uncaring or Mm. callous. It's just that we have all lived through the appalling uh, situation when the pandemic first struck where the care homes were among the most vulnerable and had some of the most um, tragic deaths where people weren't able to be with loved ones um, and the virus was ripping through them because Mm. they are, as I said, the most vulnerable. So they don't want to relive that. And then, of course, there is the additional element of care home owners being really aware that their insurance companies refuse to cover them if COVID strikes their home. So... Um, they could go broke mm. instantly overnight if it happened and, and they were uninsured and suddenly they were being sued for negligence. So it's a very complex situation and I think everybody's on the same side. Everybody wants people in care homes to have visits from the people they care most about who love them and miss mm. them. Everybody wants that. But we also want to save lives. Yes. I was speaking to um, a caller just before Christmas, I think, who had been mm. able to visit his elderly mother in a care home because of the new testing rules. And he was able to yeah. sit in the same room as her, but with a screen between them, almost as though yeah. it was a kind of, I don't want to make it sound like a prison visit, but that kind of idea where you don't yeah. actually, you can't actually touch the person. But he then said the following week, he went to try and go back again to see her once more. And they said, no, we can't do that now because there's a new lockdown. Um, and he wasn't sure what the reason was for that, because obviously he said, you know, if we're sitting on either side of a screen, um, you know, what's the problem? Well, I suppose the problem is that if the law says that you um, it is illegal to do something, then that puts everybody on a criminal footing. And mm. and we don't want that. Of course, um, we're making the rules up as we go along. This is a new situation. And you watch the government doing that with reluctance. I mean, <laughs> The most common criticism made of Boris and his team is that they do everything too slowly and, mm. and too late. So, I mean, there's some very... I've got relatives who live in Australia and they're sending me some of the press coverage of uh, Australians laughing at the whinging poms who find the whole idea of quarantining in hotels so impossible to mm. accept when in Australia and New Zealand they've had that ever since the pandemic started and they can't understand why... We're so nervous of it. So it is interesting that 
when um, regulations clamp down, we get angry. And when regulations are released, we get angry because we're also worried and frightened and we've never been in this situation before. And I think Harriet and Harriet Harman and the others should just keep calm, carry on, look at a complex situation, don't jump to the assumption that the law should be brought in in a draconian way. Let's just see if we can make things happen for everyone's benefit and get people hugging the people they love once again, which is what we all want. Yes, but I also hear from people, uh, Esther, who mm. have had... Uh, bereavements in their family whose elderly relatives have died inside the care home and they haven't really mm. been able to see them for months and months mm. and months and months and even at the very end not being able to see them either it's absolutely tragic it's happening in care homes it's happening in hospital look at kate garraway and mm. her husband derek you know um, I have just heard that someone in one of the charities I work with has died, someone we all loved and, and respected so much, you know. We're living through times of plague mm. and the stories that are emerging are terrible. What fascinates me, Mike, is I've got into fisticuffs with people who say the BBC and other broadcasters are causing us mental health damage by bringing us stories which show people suffering, um, particularly people complaining about the reports of, that have happened in hospitals. And that I really don't understand mm. because we need to know. We need to know the impact of this illness on everyone. We do. To try but and equally, I mean, people. one of the things that I always say is what the BBC mm. doesn't do uh, is do reports on the numbers of people who go into hospital with COVID, are quite seriously mm -hmm. ill, but then survive it and come out. Mm. Because far yeah. more people come out of hospital alive uh, than die in there. Indeed. And the other, the reverse side of the coin of this peculiar illness is the number of people who are asymptomatic, mm. which makes me think, well, there are a lot of people who don't have serious effects of this illness who somehow managed to shake it off. Yes. I mean, look at President Trump. So we need to bear that in mind. Yeah. We need to hold it in our hands. At least the good news that we are all sharing is the rollout of the vaccine. Yes. And there, I think, we can feel uh, not you know, over-the-top patriotism, but we can feel quite proud of the people oh, who made those Oh, come on, there's nothing decisions. wrong with a bit of over-the-top patriotism. Why not, yeah, indeed? Right. <laughs> OK, well, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's say good for us. Yeah, I think so. And, and let's hope that we will have some vaccine left over at the end when we vaccinated everybody twice so that we can make them available to the countries that haven't had our opportunities and our advantages. And, and maybe we will lead the world in donating vaccine to the, to the countries that mm. need it most. Yes. And I think uh, uh, to, to, to not, not, not as, I, as if I would normally support anything Harriet Harman actually suggests, but in her yeah. case, I think a lot of people would, would take that view that you've just espoused and say, well, let's yeah. roll that out as well so that we know, yes, it's a, it's a very dangerous disease and it can be deadly. However, you know, mm. let's balance that with the need for compassion, with the need for, mm. you know, uh, company, because loneliness is a massive problem now in this country. I mean, I've been talking to people uh, who are mm. not in any way friendless or in any way isolated, but who sometimes mm. spend an entire day not even speaking to anybody else. Yes, and that's why the telephone is the most important piece of technology available to us, particularly for older people who are not comfortable with the internet. I'm very fortunate. I've got my daughter with me, mm. and you can perhaps hear her voice. You're yes. on talk radio. Um, she's waving me goodbye <laughs> and disappearing <laughs> hastily, and I didn't even tell her it was you. Oh, well. So, um, so, but I, I think one thing I would say, Mike, you remember the Dangerous Dog Act? Yes. Which, which rebounded badly. Failed miserably, it, yes. Failed miserably. Sometimes you can do something which you think is going to be in the interest of the most vulnerable. And in that legislation, you catch some people and you make life miserable and, and difficult for people who really you shouldn't have um, caused this, this sort of pain and discomfort. And I'm worried about our care homes. I want them to succeed. I know they're on the side of their own residents. I know they want what's best for the families. And I have a feeling that 
bringing in a draconian law which makes it illegal for them to restrict visiting, I think is it, it might be a dangerous dog no. act. That's all I'm saying. Yes, no, I think you may well have a point. Thank you very much indeed. Dame Esther Ranson, founder of The Silver Line. Always a sensible point of view uh, from Dame Esther there, because it's true. Uh, sometimes legislating for something isn't right. 
there's not they've obviously been left in there alone. Uh, they've not been given the opportunity to go outside in the garden. I know the weather's not great, but mm. sometimes if the sun comes out, you know, just a bit of fresh air might nice, yeah. uh, uh, improve their well-being. Uh, but that's been the case for the ten entire ten months, and I've worked in over a dozen care homes throughout Lancashire, and people are just not being given the opportunity to go outside, even during the summer, because of the with the justification being the virus and lockdown and what have you. And uh, they're not being supplemented with any vitamins, vitamin D or anything like that. Right. Um, uh, so anyway, this uh, the, the recent uh, stage of it where they're just locking them in the rooms now. Um, there's obviously, they're, they're in there alone, they're confused, yeah. their well-being is, is uh, reducing dramatically. It's heartbreaking to see uh, what they're having to go through. And when they come, when they, because they've got dementia, they don't know what's going on, right. they'll try and come out of the room, they're being greeted with, get back in your room. It's just, and I suppose they don't have much human. interaction on the phone or anything with relatives, do they? No, no. That, mm. That's a that's a once a day thing if right. if they're lucky. And what about I the COVID sort of situation? Are they all tested? Are they all vaccinated? What? Well, they've started implementing the uh, lateral flow tests uh, on a, on a daily basis for staff. Right. Um, I haven't seen them. Uh, I haven't seen them actually do it with any regularity for the residents. Um, like for instance, there's one chap who I was with who has Parkinson's. Mm. Uh, he uh, he's got capacity. He knows where he's at. Um, he's not being given a daily lateral flow test. Uh, he's not had a positive test, as far as I'm aware, in the past three weeks, and he's still not being allowed out of his room. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's shocking, somebody who would really benefit from it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's really I'm... shocking. And who makes these decisions? I mean, I, I don't wish you to... You don't have to give away who owns your care home, but is it... I presume it's privately run, is it? It is privately run, but in terms of who makes the decisions, uh, at the moment, I think it's... Uh, everybody's just making uh, desperate uh, choices because right. they don't want the book to, you know, the, the, it to fall on their head yeah. if any if there was a, a massive outbreak. Yes. Uh, and, and I understand that, I do, but uh, I, I don't see that uh, just confining everybody to the room, regardless of their, their COVID status. Yeah. Well, I don't uh, understand I, I if... if, if, if yeah, I mean, if they've got the vaccine and if they've had the vaccine, surely that would protect them in some way, wouldn't it? Well, with the, the, at the home that I'm at currently... Um, they had the uh, the mRNA jab. Um, I'm not sure about calling it a vaccine, but it's a jab. Yeah. And uh, that, that was on New Year's Eve. Mm. And then a week later, um, we had a, an alleged COVID. Because I'm not the one who's taken the test. I'm just told what I'm told. Yeah. But the, the chap who I was with was allegedly patient zero. He had had, two days before I saw him, uh, he had had a... Um, uh, temperature that was slightly high 37 mm. and then uh, so when, when i saw him said oh no he's all right uh, but then that day uh, it was like okay no he's got uh, he's got a positive test but he had no symptoms other than a bit of a croaky throat and a slight cough mm. he was kind of his usual self uh, but then he was confined to his room and shortly thereafter uh, like i say from around the seventh everybody was was confined to their rooms uh, now the situation is that uh, there's about four that have died allegedly from COVID right. post-vaccine, um, and that was that was maybe within a week of following them being confined to the rooms as well. So I'm not sure how much that had an effect on it, but um, you know it's complicated because there was a lady who didn't have the vaccine, and because she was ill already, and mm. she she died uh, sadly you know, shortly thereafter yeah. as well. And there was another chap who wasn't uh, wasn't too good and he, he was in the, the other four, so... Uh, yeah, it's like a terrible say, situation, but it just seems to me that for these poor individuals who are nearing the end of their lives, who are in need of some kind of, you know, um, company, uh, if not some comfort, you know, and they can't get that, it must be dreadful for them. Yeah, Mike, I, I just want to say that these these people are lovely people. You know, dementia, it, it, it limits you. But the, they're so lovely. And I would encourage anyone out there who wants to, who, who has thought about doing care work or uh, getting into the industry, mm. it's very easy to get into the industry. Um, and right now, I think that it's, it's, it really needs your help. Mm. Uh, I would encourage people to do it. It's so rewarding yeah. and they're so amazing. And I just don't, I'm ringing because I don't like to see them not getting the very best of treatment and the very best of dignity. 
Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I appreciate your call, Steve. Thank you very much indeed. Steve in Blackpool saying, um, if you have uh, the the ability to do so, and maybe uh, you even could do with getting a job, the care sector uh, is a very rewarding place to go and work. It's probably quite distressing at times, I would imagine, and probably quite unfortunate at times for not only for the people there, but also for the people working in that place as well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's time to say a very, very good morning to Alex Phillips, who's out in Lanzarote. I was going to say stuck in Lanzarote, but I mean, I can think of worse places to be actually marooned. Uh, but you've been there for a very long time, Alex. Very good morning to you. I have. I came over for a week's holiday at the very start of December because it was in the UK travel corridor. And I was actually supposed to be coming back and spending some time in talk towers with you good people. But they took it out of the travel corridor, meaning I'd have to quarantine when I got home. So I thought, oh, I'll extend my holiday. Then we had lockdown. Then all the flights home were cancelled. And well, here I am, about two months later. Well I, mean, well, I mean, as I said, it could be worse. I mean, you've no, you're not missing any great weather here. You're looking very healthy. You're looking as though you're enjoying yourself. Um, but what do you do all day? Ah, well, you know, it's um, we've, we've got a sort of semi-lockdown here in Lanzarote where bars and restaurants are now closed at six o'clock in the evening. But otherwise, during the daytime, it's life as normal. You know, you can go for a nice little cocktail. You can sunbathe on the beach. There's hiking. I'm going horse riding, paragliding, just, yeah, trying to be fit and healthy and um, appreciate my freedom. I Very guess. nice. Well, you haven't decided to defect to the EU, though, have you? No, 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 no. Don't worry about that. But, you know, when it comes to Lanzarote, I could actually become a Remainer. I do love it here. It's a yeah. gorgeous. It is, it is lovely. But I tell you what, the Remainers back here have gone a bit quiet. Uh, even Tony Blair threw the EU under the bus the other day uh, because their performance on Friday night was so laughable. I couldn't quite believe what was happening. I was shocked. I was. I, I couldn't. I, I had no words at that time when when we found out that they had essentially torn up Section 16 of the Northern Irish Protocol and wanted to stick a hard border there. And you know, if anything was going to stoke up tensions and return, you know, the island of Ireland to the horrible era of the Troubles, which the EU kept threatening would happen as a result of Brexit, it would be actually denying life-saving medicine to people crossing the border. I mean, that is just insane. If anything was going to pit you know, one group of people against another, it would be that. Mm. So I think everyone was shocked. And it was a matter of hours, wasn't it, before Ursula von der Leyen decided that actually, no, it was an administrative error. She didn't mean to do it. She hadn't informed Ireland. She hadn't informed any member states. And what people are actually saying who are close to her inside the European Commission is, in fact, she acted rather unilaterally. Um, but it was shocking. It was a massive, massive diplomatic error. But that's not it. I mean, remember, of course, she also ordered that production sites and laboratories in Brussels were raided by the police mm. because she got obsessed with the idea that stocks made for the EU were actually going to the UK, which isn't actually true. She went on an attack against Pfizer trying to prevent them uh, exporting vaccine to the UK when actually her beef was with AstraZeneca. They lied then about the vaccine not working and a few minutes later they approved it. They lied about paying research and development to AstraZeneca, which they said, well, we've never received that money. They lied about the nature of the contract and this best endeavours clause. Right. It's just, I mean, it's the sort of behaviour that international common commentators would think would be worthy of Putin on a bad day. Well, exactly right. And it reminded me as well of what you'd always told me in the past about the way the EU operates in other parts of the world that we don't know so much about, like Africa, for example, where they basically stride in there and demand everything from them uh, and give them very little in return and basically kind of monopolise their way through the entire continent. Right, yeah, and they do. And actually, that's what they've been trying to do with the UK, because we got our procurement systems in place about three months ahead of the EU. We've invested per capita more than any other nation when it comes to vaccine development and drove a lot of that resource into AstraZeneca, which is the British vaccine, which we're now saying that we will provide to the developing world at cost price. This is going to save billions of lives around the world. And we've quietly got on with ordering, pre-ordering a lot of vaccines, some of which haven't come, come onto line yet. We've ordered about five 0.5 times more vaccines than we need for the entire UK population. And we've, you know, rolled our sleeves up quite literally and been getting on with our own jabbing. The EU, however, saying we want to do everything centrally. It, you know, it's too bureaucratic. It's administratively slow. And as a result, things just didn't get done. So when they then turned around and said to AstraZeneca, right, we want millions of vaccines and we want them now, AstraZeneca said, well, okay, but 
we, we can't scale up production to that level to meet that need. And one of the reasons that the EU got themselves into trouble is because at the beginning of all this, they took a very protectionist approach, which is an EU thing to do, and essentially put most of their eggs in German and French baskets. They went heavily for the Pfizer vaccine, which of course can only be stored at minus 70 degrees temperatures, making it logistically very difficult. And then they put, pinned a lot of hopes on Sanofi, a French pharmaceutical company. And as far as I'm aware, that vaccine is barely out of early stage trials. So mm. they then turned around and said, right, Britain's got a good vaccine. We want it, we want it now. And essentially wanted to take our supplies. I mean, it, it, it beggars belief. It really does. And I mean, Ursula von der Leyen is beginning to make old Jean-Claude Juncker look like the very responsible man that never takes too much wine at lunchtime. Well, as far as I'm aware, she wasn't a particularly popular defence no. minister back in Germany. I was reading somewhere the other day, actually, that only about one third of various, you know, army supplies actually worked. And at some point, um, soldiers were actually training with broomsticks instead that's of right. guns. Well, one of the things <laughs> apparently that she's really useless at is procurement. And clearly that's what's happened with the vaccine as well. Well, and I think that she likes to talk big. She's, she's for, for a very petite woman. She likes to sort of, you know, she's got quite sharp elbows, but it doesn't work. You can't turn around and bully a newly independent country and say, our lives are worth more than yours. You've got your vaccine procurement process correct. We haven't. Now give us yours. Oh, mm. in fact, don't give us yours. We're going to go raid laboratories instead. But we're quite lucky that, in fact, where we've procured vaccines, a lot of the production sites, not just those that we are receiving already, but those which we hope are going to come online, a lot of those production sites in the UK. So we've got one vaccine that's going to be made in Stockton from Tees. We've got another, which is hopefully going to be approved soon, which will be made in Livingston in Scotland. Mm. So we've actually done quite well to domesticate, if you will, our own supply chain, which is crucially important. And if that's what people want to call vaccine nationalism, then so be it. But I think we've been fleet of foot. We're trying to save lives. And what I think is very admirable is we've turned around and said to the EU, of course, we will help you. We must stick to our own commitments first, vaccinate our own population. That's fair. UK taxpayers have paid for these vaccines. We voted for that prime minister. This is our system. Yeah. But it, you know, I don't think French lives or German lives or Czech lives are worth any less than British lives. So absolutely, we must try and help them where we can because we need as much of the globe vaccinated as possible yeah. if we're going to unlock and have normal travel again. I mean, it was suggested to me, I think, by, by somebody who called in the other day that uh, you know perhaps we should, we should hand out some of our vaccines if we've got spare capacity to the Commonwealth first before Europe, because obviously uh, if the country's a poorer country, then that might make more sense. But as far as the, uh, the, the EU is now concerned, I think she's dealt herself and the EU Commission quite a serious blow because an awful lot of individual countries are now saying, well, I'll tell you what, we will take your, uh, your vaccination uh, handout, but we'll also order more of our own because we don't trust you. Right. I know. I mean, actually, initially, when she wanted this centrified system, Germany, Netherlands, Italy had started going about doing it themselves. And they got a sharp slap on the wrist and were told to stop. Um, and then, of course, she's messed it up. And then the diplomatic kerfuffle that followed, it's hardly showering the EU with glory. And it's amazing, actually, that there has been for the first time international outcry about those moves, because often the EU is extremely deft at being able to negotiate behemoth PR disasters. I mean, look at the Eurozone crisis mm. where they impoverished entire countries, you know, plunged millions of people into unemployment, homelessness even, um, removed democratically elected leaders and turned around and said, oh, it's not our fault. It's not the single currency. It's the fault of the banks. And Molotov cocktails were flying through the skies of Athens mm. when the uh, EU got given the Nobel Peace Prize. You right. couldn't make it up. But this time, I, I do feel like the mask has slipped. And a lot of questions that people on the continent, those member states in the EU, will be asking themselves right now is how do we get rid of this woman? Yeah. How do we ourselves from these problems and there is rising euro skepticism across the continent and not only that the eu also want to centralize the recovery fund so when countries are in an economic mess when we come out the other side of lockdown and they need to bail out businesses that goes against eu regulations and the eu is saying well we will do this on your behalf channeled via the European Central Bank, and therefore it won't be illegal to, you know, essentially deploy state aid. But that will come with conditions. And believe me, I think when there's a big economic crisis, especially on the continent, following COVID-19, and the EU are left to handle that, these tensions you're seeing already with cars being set on fire in Rotterdam and, and, and the like, I think they're going to explode even more. I think the EU's in for a very, very difficult journey. Yes, I think so. And also because we're having to kind of address 
who gets the vaccination next, whether it's police officers or whether it's teachers or whether it's other public sector workers or public uh, sort of service workers, they're going to have to come up with a plan to hand out the vaccines to different countries. And they're going to have to prioritise countries, aren't they? Right, yeah. And actually what we're seeing at the moment is Spain has had to completely stop its vaccination programme for the next two weeks because the supply chains have just run dry. Mm. And that must be absolutely gutting for people in Spain when they're looking at the news and they can see other countries are vaccinating and they know the reason they're not protecting those people and with everyday lost lives are being lost that could have been prevented, they must find that utterly galling at the end of the day it's almost you have to be on a war footing to deal with something like a global health crisis and mm. the eu have proven themselves to be once again moving at a glacial pace far too bureaucratic and far too interested actually in the preservation of itself of its own ways on detra of saying we must be in control of everything yeah. rather than doing an effective job yeah, it's been absolutely appalling. As I say, they haven't done themselves any favours. What have you made of what's been going on with the SNP? I was talking to George Pascoe Watson uh, this morning. Nicola Sturgeon's obviously got an awful lot of problems at home, as it were. Um, but she's kind of using her second referendum for independence and the European Union to try and distract everybody from it. Uh, she was one mm -hmm. of the few British politicians who didn't castigate the EU on Friday night. Um, what are the EU making of all that? Well, what's so crazy, actually, is Nicola Sturgeon didn't just not castigate the EU. She started suggesting our vaccine should be sent to, to Brussels mm. and to be distributed over the continent. I mean, this is the Scottish Nation National Party, which is all about putting Scotland first. They vaccinated fewer people in Scotland than any other country in the United Kingdom. Mm. They're really messing this up. We've had to send in the British Army to go and help up there. And now she's saying to people, oh, you know, vote for us, have independence. We're going to give your vaccines to Brussels. Brussels will be in charge of everything you do i just can't see how the general public are going to fall for that but i do think you're right it is a big distraction technique because you know what's going on with the alex salmon trial is is, is cringeworthy and her association with that and how much she's brushed under the carpet and how much she knows about what's been going on well I mean, interesting. there's a lot the, the, the story came out yesterday peter murrell her husband has decided that he will decline the invitation to speak to the Alex Salmon inquiry, uh, thereby not abs absolutely giving them the benefit of what it is that he knows and when he knew it, which seems an extraordinary thing. I can't imagine that happening in London. Well, it's a very murky business, isn't it? And actually, we do need these things publicly aired and addressed when it comes to allegations of serious sexual assault from not just a politician, but a first minister, someone who is actually in charge of government. It's absolutely vital that we understand what's gone on in order to prevent that sort of level of abuse not happening again, if that abuse did take place. Um, but it's a massive headache for the SNP and a massive headache for Sturgeon. But she, a bit like the EU, is again someone who seems to be very good at handling a PR crisis mm. you know she bats her little fist on a lectern the BBC turned every single TV camera onto her we've had about two general elections now where you'd think Nicola Sturgeon was running in every single seat in the UK you know she seems to be the media's pin-up girl but isn't she great isn't she effective whereas when you actually pop the lid off um you know what's going on in Scotland you realize the economy is a mess they can't do vaccine rollout she's just you know a, a semi-decent orator and I think because she's a, a female as well you know the the media tend to pander to her and forget actually that she seems rather inept at doing her job. Yeah, exactly right. And what about the EU's view of Scotland? Because I always say to people that because of the situation in Spain and Catalonia, I can't imagine the EU really granting Scotland independence uh, as an independent nation inside the EU anyway. It's very difficult because, I mean, the EU would actually look at it from the situation of what's going to help us. Yes, it does create a problem when it comes to the Catalonian referendum, which they decided wasn't legal and valid. Um, and that, you know, it's not so much that the EU would worry about that, but Spain wouldn't like that. A member state of the EU would not like that. But also, if you're going to become a member state of the EU, you have to sign up to the single currency now. You can't just walk in with whatever you're using. And frankly, if Scotland were to become independent, I see no reason why it should make any claims on using the pounds. You've got to have, I think, a unified uh, fiscal system, a unified financial system to make a single currency work. Um, so then what would happen if they've got a different currency over the border? If you thought the Northern Irish border situation was difficult, <laughs> imagine if we suddenly got a, a oh, border. I know. I know. It's mad, isn't it? Absolutely mad. Well, it's a great talk to you. Good to see you, Alex. When are you coming back? Are you waiting for the quarantine rules to change uh, yeah. at some point? It's strange. I don't know. I, it, I'm just sort of playing it by ear at the moment. There are occasional flights sort of once a week. And I don't see any reason to come home right now because I'd just be stuck inside a house. I'd yeah. have to 
like you said, quarantine for, for two weeks or something on return. Get a, I think I can still get a PCR test and escape after five days. Um, but, you know, if they suddenly bring in hotel quarantine, Nightingale hotels, as I think they should be called, um, then I definitely want to try and avoid that because I don't want them to be fixed with a £1,500 penalty to be kept by armed guard in a sordid little hotel room. No. So, you know, just got to try and navigate it. it the news is changing every day, so I'll figure out best plan of action as okay. and when. Good stuff. All right, Alex, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Alex Phillips for brings the party, MEP. Uh, sounds like she's having a better time than most of us are, uh, so she's probably doing the right thing uh, out there in the sunshine. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. I've got some bad news for that Sophia Collins woman who doesn't like the Union Jack on the uh, Morrison's butter. Apparently it's on Tesco's as well. Uh, and it's also on one uh, called Cowbell. So apparently if you buy any butter now, it's got a Union Jack on it because it's supporting British farming. <laughs> Bad luck, Sophia. I think she might have to make it onto Plank of the Week for that. Uh, let's talk now, though, to Bobby Seagull, maths teacher, author of The Life-Changing Magic of Numbers. Uh, Bobby, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. So are you going to be my student today? I am, yes. Why not indeed? What are you going to teach me? So um, there's lots of things we could do. We're going to probably look at area area and perimeters of shape yes because what i was asking um izzy our, our, our producer was about the um different funny names of different shapes that we don't normally use like trapezoids and you know things dodecahedrons and things like that i mean i don't even remember how many sides those things have got but how would you go about measuring them yeah so i think firstly um let's go back to scratch start from the very beginning so okay. look at basic shapes and build up that's always a good way so i've got my my trusty whiteboard. But unlike Blue Peter, I've not prepared it earlier. It's going to be a live lesson in progress. <laughs> Just don't paint the tortoise. <laughs> so the most basic shape that we can put up today is a square. Okay. Not drawn amazingly well, but there you go. Um, so give me a dimension. Give me a length of one side of the square. Okay, well, let's make it, uh, I don't know, six. Does it matter six, what, six, what yeah. six inches? Six inches, okay. So we can call it six inches. Um, so to work out the area of any shape essentially it's telling us how much surface area is enclosed in that space yeah and for a square it's quite basic you just multiply the length times the width yes so you do the six times the six to give us 36 good and then we always have a unit because my students sometimes put an answer 36 and I say what 36 space rangers 36 union jacks there's a unit so 36 inches squared yes so that's really crucial so that's that's a square the area but the other part, Mike, is the perimeter. Yes. The perimeter is, imagine you're going on a little walk mm. around and around the square. Yes. So you're walking all the way around. You start there, walk there, walk there, walk there, walk there. How many inches? Okay, this is a small person yes. walking around. Well, it could be an ant, couldn't it? That'd be 24 inches, wouldn't it? 24, excellent, well done. So ant the area is, yeah, ant man could be walking around. So 24 inches. So that's a basic shape. But we can make it more complicated. Um, rectangles can be used as well, but rectangle is the same concept. Um, triangle is the next one to think about. Mm. So let's have a look at a triangle. So this one here, and for those parents that remember Pythagoras theorem, this is what's called a Pythagorean triangle. Okay. It's a right angle triangle, Mike. Um, I can see your enthusiasm. Is that different? Is that different? Well, it's bringing all sorts of things back to me. My memory's coming back to me. Is that the same as an isosceles triangle? Ooh, isosceles is where we have um, two sides are the same and one is not. Okay. So two sides are the same. And the other one you might be thinking of is a um, equilateral triangle where all yes. the sides are the same length. Yes. Yes, I, um, I, I'm, I'm remembering all these terms now. I haven't done this for a long time, Bobby. You have to remember that. But, you know, you're, doing, you're doing well because often with maths, I find, Mike, a lot of parents... And sometimes students, of course, as well, suffer from maths anxiety. And this is like that negative emotional response people get when dealing with maths. Yes. And of course, there'll be viewers and listeners hearing this, getting little sort of palpitations. Then, yeah, absolutely. Well, I know people who, who literally can't do maths in their head. They just, they're, they're sort of traumatized by it. Yeah. And I think, Mike, it's okay with maths. As a teacher, I would say it's okay to admit that it's d difficult for you. But the key thing is, can you take steps? So in fact, like one of the hats I have on today is I'm an ambassador for the charity National Numeracy. Mm. And they encourage adults to sort of reacquaint with numbers because we always say it's never too late to pick up your number skills. Right. 
no, I think that's absolutely right. I still think that, you know, not allow or allowing kids to use calculators and stuff in exams is a bad idea. Oh, I, I genuinely, I think um, young people and adults, the more you can practice mentally in your head, that gives you the confidence to know what's happening in the real world. Again, like if you are sh uh, shopping, you want a sense of, oh, does my shopping look like it's about 50 quid? Yeah. And if the bill comes out as 200 pounds, you go, no, 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 no. <laughs> I've done an estimation and it's way off. So yes. people do get ripped off because they don't have that basic confidence in numeracy. Right. Absolutely. Shall we carry on with the please, triangle? <laughs> please do, yes. Um, okay. So triangle, the area of it is slightly different. So we do the base times the height because that would give us a rectangle, but because it's like half a rectangle, ah, yes. divided by two. Right. So what are you? I see you've already assigned some measurements there. Have you? I have. I've made a nice. I've made a nice Pythagorean triple. Yes. If I'd picked odd. So that's numbers. three times four, divided yes. by two, which is six, right? Perfect. Thank and you. again, we could have given it any unit: centimeters, millimeters, yes. meters, astronomical unit. It could have given, it could be any sort of unit, but that's that the sort of the two most basic or three most basic shapes. Yes. Okay, what's next? What's next? Ooh, where do we go next? Well, Ooh. what about the circumference, not the, the, the perimeter of the triangle? How about Ooh. that? I suppose that's, just, that's pretty easy, isn't it? The perimeter actually, Mike, is fairly straightforward. It's just a case of walking around yeah. the edge of it. Okay. And what if you would do, and this, I, I don't know why I'm asking more difficult questions than you're posing, but what if you were given that as a, a, a problem to solve? So you saw that the base of the uh, of the triangle was three, the height of it was four. How would you work out what the third side of it is if you were told you had to Ooh, do that? This is an excellent question, Mike. Um, so firstly, we, let me get another whiteboard. Another whiteboard. Because okay. We're moving on to a different problem. Um, I should have Blue Peter style people making things, but our budget's too low for that. Yeah, here's one I made <laughs> earlier. Um, so we've got this triangle here. Yeah. So Mike, in triangles, the first thing you have to identify is what type of triangle. Yes. And normally, um, for the sort of problems that we look at, especially school children, uh, it tends to be a right angled triangle. Yeah. Um, which means that, do you remember what the word right angle means? Yeah, it means it's 90 degrees, isn't it? Perfect. You, Mike, you're, you're an ambassador. You should become an ambassador <laughs> for the charity National Numeracy. Your maths and numeracy is on, on point. It's not bad, is it? Considering I it's don't really good. do very much good. of it. I'm very impressed here. I mean, so, I, I must admit, I have to tell you, though, my son, um, when he was at secondary school, he's now moved on to uh, to sixth form college. I kind of lost the ability to help him with his maths around about 14. Because it was just too hard. Yeah, and I think that's OK, because I think, remember, when you leave school, again, as a maths teacher, I love things like trigonometry and Pythagoras, I'm going to show you. Yeah. But the reality is, Mike, most people need the sort of practical numeracy skills, mm. your percentages when you're checking interest rates at yeah. banks, your ratios when you're cooking, uh, your decimals when you're adding up mm. uh, your income expense statement. So it's the practical things. These things are, are nice. And of course, in DIY, you might use them. But I would say it's a practical numeracy that's really important. Yes. OK. So what are you going to so you're going to show me how to work out the, uh, the diagonal here? Yes, the missing part. Mm. That's actually a fancy word for the, uh, the diagonal. Uh, it sounds like hippopotamus, but it's not. Do you remember what it is? Hypo do you, yeah, do you know I've forgotten that one. I do. I, it, you're gonna. I'm gonna kick myself when you tell me. Go on. It's the hypotenuse. Hypotenuse. That's right. Yeah. Always sounded yeah. like a, an animal to me. It does. It sounds like hippopotamus. Yes. Uh, with my year sevens, I often say it's. But I tell the thing is sometimes when you tell kids it sounds like hippopotamus in an exam, they write it's the hippopotamus. <laughs> it, it is a hypotenuse. Right. Hypotenuse. And that's the longest side of that triangle, Mike. Mm. Okay. Okay. So, do you remember Mike Pythagoras' theorem? Does that word ring a bell? Well, I remember the words Pythagoras' theorem, but I can't remember what the theorem actually is. Okay. So, what it is is Mike. It tells you that it, I mean the basic of it's a squared. But let's say explain what that means because letters by itself mean very little. A squared plus b squared equals c squared. Right. And what that means is if on one side the two shorter sides we drew a square. So we drew squares on both sides. Mm and we added up the area of the square, it actually would equal the area of the square on the longer side, the hypotenuse. Mm. So we can, we can try that in action. So this one, we'll, this is one side, this is the other short side, and that's the longer side. So Mike, do you remember what squared means in maths? Yes, it's the same number multiplied by itself. Yeah, so we can do this one first. Right. So three squared so three gives squared us... three squared is nine. Excellent, well done. 
and then four squared. Four squared, 16. Excellent. And then good for my self-esteem, this. Plus... <laughs> Add it together. Sorry, 16 and 9, 20, uh, 25. Good. So what it tells us is the area of the square on the hypotenuse is 25. So now you need to try and think of a number that when squared gives us 25. Okay, so that would be 5. Perfect. There we go. See, I'm That's not sure good. I ever knew that system. That's very good. Yeah. And I think, again, with maths, again, if parents are trying to help children, I would say it's not a case of always being able to do your kids' homework. You've done, you know, yeah. it's not for parents to do that. But it's more like talking to children, understanding what the process is. Because at right. least that way the child will say, mom or dad, oh, look, I'm meant to be adding these two and I get seven. Why am I getting seven? They're like, no, 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 you're meant to square it. So I mm. think it's just having that conversation yes. with children. Because what I find, Mike, is the children that do better at homeschooling are not the ones whose parents are more academic, but the ones whose parents are more engaged. Yes. So if it means every hour just popping into the room, and I know Catherine Burble will sing, but the head teacher, Michaela, talks about this mm. on probably on talk radio. It's about coming in and having a little conversation. So what have you done today? Yeah. What was your maths lesson? What was your science lesson? Because if kids are not accountable, they sort of feel like, oh, I can get away with playing yes. on my TikTok or Instagram. Right. So it's that accountability that's important. Okay. That's very good, Bobby. Well, we've got time for one more little exercise, if you would like to, uh, to do one more. Ooh. One more. I've, I've never had a uh, adult so enthusiastic about math. This is <laughs> honestly, Mike. This is one thing. Often when I do things on various uh, radio, television stations, the presenters will like go, "Oh God, I hated maths." Yeah. And and we'll get into muddles about the problem. But you're the first person that's confident. And I, I'm very. Pleased. Well, you see, this is the home of common sense you're in now, Bobby. And and so therefore, I'm like everybody else. I'm not like most presenters. I actually am a real human being. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Okay, let's have a look at something. Um, how about, okay, this is, a, this is a more challenging one. A circle. And a, circles are quite fun. Yes. Because a lot of young people like football and often say, imagine it's the, um, the circle in the center spot. Yes. So it's, I think it's meant to be you're 10 yards away. Uh-huh. I think that's right. 10 yard, yeah, it's a 10-yard circle. Yeah. So for this, there is a formula we need. Uh, to work out, let's say, imagine you're a football player and you're jogging around the outside. Yes. You're trying to work out how long it takes to jog around. Mm. So the formula here, do you remember this symbol here, Mike, from school? The circle? That's uh, that pi symbol. Oh, the pi, yes. I do. Yes. Was so it 27 over it, 2 or something? Yeah, it's, it's about 3.14 roughly. Yeah. To be honest, it goes on forever. Right. But it's roughly 3.14. Okay. Um, and the formula is to work out the circumference, so that's the same as the perimeter, you do pi multiplied by the diameter. Yes. So the diameter here is twice the radius. So it's a bit more complex than initially. So, so we'll it's like, it, is it 22 over 7 then? Is, is that what it is? Oh, yes. 22. Exactly, Mike. So sometimes people use the approximation 22 over 7. Yeah. Mike, you're, you're storming this. I, I know. feel like becoming and teaching maths to the nation forget <laughs> joe wicks p it should be maths with mike graham and it's funny what you can remember after all these years i'm honestly i'm genuinely impressed i'm going to be on the phone to the charity national university and say we've got a new ambassador for you okay we've got rachel riley we've got martin lewis we've got now mike graham very Radio happy to Bruce. do it absolutely brilliant listen bobby it's been lovely talking to you uh we haven't we're running out of time because ian collins is here and uh, I don't want to show him up anymore, both my amazing math skills. So um, thank you so much for doing it. Bobby uh, Seagull there teaching us about math. I'm, I can't imagine how I remember all that stuff. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.